We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 94. I have been following our guest for a while on social media, and I have always been so inspired by her story, so I really was excited when I was able to have her come on the podcast to talk about how she got into the equestrian world and how she continues to be such an encouragement and such an inspiration to everyone she comes in contact with. Today, we are talking with a blind equestrian athlete who has the goals and aspirations to compete at the highest level of show jumping. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Ren Blaze Zimmerman. Well, I have so many questions for you. I feel like uh, we've been following each other on Instagram for a bit, but I am excited to dive into more about you. So would love to care about how you first got into the equestrian world. Yeah. So I actually always wanted to ride growing up. And unfortunately, my parents uh, didn't have the finances and they thought it was too dangerous for me to ride. So it wasn't until after I finished undergrad that I started riding um, at a therapeutic riding program, actually, because of my visual impairment, which we'll get into. And I was the least disabled of the people in that program. And so the instructor there didn't ride herself. So they actually started letting me exercise ride the horses. And I sort of taught myself the basics of how to ride through that. And then in between undergrad and grad school, I took a year off just to study for the GREs and the GMATs. And at that point, being at that therapeutic riding program, I was putting in enough time that I really, I always wanted to learn how to jump. And the instructor there told me actually that because of my eyesight, I would never be able to do that. So I figured at that point, you know, that I wanted to find a trainer that would teach me how to jump. So I left that program and I tried several trainers before um, someone actually decided that, yeah, they would put me on their horse and teach me how to jump. And from there, it just progressed. And I started competing against able-bodied riders. And then I moved across the country to pursue this more seriously. So that's sort of how I originally got into riding. Wow. So you have Stargardt's disease. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And when you were when you were little, did you already see the signs of that? Were you born knowing that you had it? How did that kind of come about? I was not. So I actually have two different things wrong with my eyes. One is this rare genetic disease called Stargardt's disease. And then I started wearing glasses in second grade the way, you know, anyone who needs glasses um, right. wears them. But at that point, you know, I didn't realize that there was anything else wrong with my eyes. As neither did my parents. And it wasn't till I was 17. So I was a senior in high school when I started not being able to see the board, even though, I, they, you know, they put me in the front row. And then there was one night I had just gotten my license and I was driving home and all of a sudden kind of the street lights and the lights of my car in front of me all blurred together and I couldn't see where the road was. It freaked me out and I pulled over and I called my parents and I said, you need to come get me. And so at that point, you know, that combination of all these little things of not being able to see, they took me back to my eye doctor who then, you know, sent me on to some retina specialists. They did a bunch of tests and it took a few months before they actually gave me this diagnosis just because it is so rare. They didn't really know what it was. 
And so, yeah, at 17, um, I got diagnosed with Stargardt's macular dystrophy, which is very similar to someone who has macular degeneration. So that's in the elderly population, but it manifests manifests itself in the same way, but it's a much more rare gene that's, that's responsible for it. So pretty much my central vision is completely blank, about the size of a dinner plate. And then my peripheral vision is very, very blurry. But instead of there being a blank black or white spot in the center where I can't see, my brain uses what it does pick up in the periphery. So, you know, the more contrasting color, if there's some sort of movement, it will try to blend that into the center to guess what should be in the center in that Mm. blank spot. So it ends up creating this sort of sparkly effect almost. But at the end of the day, if there is something that lies directly ahead of me, I won't be able to see it. It's only if it's in my peripheral vision and it's like a blur of color that I'll be able to pick that out. Gotcha. So from the night that you were driving home and you, you know, had that scary moment Mm -hmm. of your your eyesight just doing crazy things that you were not used to until now, how much has your vision changed? I mean, is it something that over time it's just going to get worse and worse or is there any, you know, way to hold that back? What's the, the deal for you? Right. So it is a progressive degenerative disease, which means it gets worse over time. And at that point, you know, yeah, my, my vision was bad, but I didn't really realize how much worse it would get. And, you know, when you're 17, you're kind of like, oh, I'm invincible sort of thing. And it wasn't until about halfway through college that it got significantly worse. So the way it progressively gets worse is that it, it will go very quickly. So it'll happen over a day or two and then it plateaus for maybe a year and then it can get worse and then it plateaus. So you never really know when or how much worse it will actually get until it happens. So again, it was halfway through college that it got significantly worse and I really started having to be able to use these adaptive softwares and go into, you know, the center for people with disabilities and get reading softwares and note takers and all sorts of things like that. And then it wasn't until, you know, before you get a a diagnosis like this, you have this path that you're set out on. And so I always wanted to go to business school and go into the business world. And so it wasn't until grad school that I realized that that path just wasn't really feasible for me anymore, not being able to see um, on a computer Mm -hmm. and that I decided, you know, that I needed to take quality of life into consideration. And so I I just realized that with this, with this diagnosis that I wouldn't be able to do what I had previously set out to do. So at this point, my eyesight, even with the aid of corrective lenses is 2400. So someone with perfect vision has 2020. So, so it is pretty bad. Yeah. Wow. So as you were looking to change the course of your career path and you had been riding a little bit at this point in time, how did Mm -hmm. the riding come into the picture of as you were doing some exercise riding at the therapy center to like, oh, I want to like give this a go? Yeah. So it was, you know, in between under grad school, I mean, I was riding pretty much every day. And so anyone who's listening to this podcast knows how important horses, you know, how important they are to us in our mental health and all of Mm -hmm. that. And so when I did go off to grad school, I had to stop cold turkey just because I can't drive. And so getting out to a barn, I went up to the middle of Rochester, New York, which is in the middle of nowhere. And so I wasn't able to get out to a barn. So, So stopping cold turkey was really hard for me. And it was at that point that I realized moving forward, as I mentioned, quality of life earlier, that if I have to live with this disease for the rest of my life, I need horses in my life. And so I, you know, I did a semester at grad school and I reevaluated and I thought, 
I can't do this. I need, I need horses in my life um, just for my own mental sanity, if nothing else. And it was one of those things where, you know, ever since I was little, ever since I can remember, I always wanted to ride and learn how to jump. And so I thought, you know, getting a disability like this kind of makes you reevaluate. And I said, I'm going to put everything on hold and I'm going to pursue this dream that I always put on the back burner, but I always wanted to learn how to do. And so I left grad school and I decided to go all in on the horses and just pursue my passion pretty much. What was your parents' reaction to that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were not very happy about it. I had a pretty good scholarship to grad school first off. So I gave that up. And of course, you know, at that point, they obviously didn't support me riding growing up, so I didn't get to. So they they always valued education, and they wanted me to go into a very stereotypical, you know, doctor, lawyer sort of career. Sure. So they couldn't really wrap their head around something, one, a sport that they didn't understand, and two, something so theoretical as a blind person doing show jumping, you know, um, yeah. just because it, it hasn't really been done before. Wow. So. There was definitely some points of contention between us and it, you know, it's been a few years since I did drop out of grad school to pursue this and they've, they have come around to it slowly, but I think to this day, you know, in their mind, someone with a disability, you know, the concern, because we do have a lot more expenses and different things and softwares and technology Mm -hmm. that costs a lot of money. So I think their concern has always been that I'm able to support myself. And they're still trying to wrap their head around how I'm able to do that in the equestrian world. But of course, I know they want me to be successful. So totally. Yeah, Yeah. it's been interesting. (laughs) This is where I have so many questions. And I feel like you probably get so many questions. And I feel like some are valid. Some, I feel like if I were you, would maybe grind my gears a little bit. (laughs) But (laughs) first of all, people see you jumping around and I'm sure you get the questions like, how is she doing this? Or like, how, like, there's no way she's like fully blind or like, how blind is she that she can go around and do this? I mean, how, how do you navigate that? Because I mean, I I love, I love what you have on your website where it shows a photo of what we see and then what you Mm -hmm. see. How, (laughs) how do you go about doing that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Well, first of all, just to backtrack really quick, one of the huge things I do run into is that people see me and they say, she doesn't look blind. Well, Mm -hmm. what does someone that's blind look like, right? (laughs) And the problem with that is our society has trained us to see the white cane, see a guide dog, Mm -hmm. and it automatically puts then that with being blind. And so I don't use either one of those just because I have you know, there, there are so many little things that I have figured out how to go about my normal life. You know, sounds, for example, if I'm sitting at a a table with people, I'm listening to the person putting their silverware down and their glasses down and all these different things. So I know where everything is on the table, just based on paying attention with my ears pretty much. So, and then also, you know, I am young, I'm, you know, I'm a young female who I like to dress well, and I just go about my normal day today. And so people don't, think I'm blind. And what people don't realize is that about 90 something percent of people who are blind actually have some sort of usable vision, not very much, but they at least have a little bit. And for me, that's my peripheral vision. And so you use a lot of common sense, you know, the doorknob is in the same place on every single door. So you reach for it and you just have to go about your day-to-day stuff with confidence. So that being said, taking that into the ring, I do have a very extensive process on how I learn my courses. 
And I, I know it's on my website with some pictures to go along with it. But to explain it pretty quickly, I pretty much will walk the perimeter quarter and half lines of an arena if it's a new arena for me. So I get a very good idea of the space of the arena I'm going to be riding in. And then I will go into the arena with an aide and they will stand at each fence with me and we'll pretty much do a 360. And so the aide will tell me, you know, about seven feet away at this angle, there's a blue jump. And then we turn and at 10 feet away, there's a red jump at this angle. And so if once we do that at every single jump, I have this mental map of where each obstacle in the arena is. And then once they actually, you know, post the course at a show, my aide will draw out the pretty much the jumps and the line that I'm going to take from each jump. And so I'll memorize that. So I know after the first jump, it's a right. After the second jump, it's a left to the green. So we'll go back into the arena. I'll walk that course. So I have a general idea of where I'm actually going. Mm -hmm. And then I can pick points on the horizon. So even though it's blurry, I can make out like the tree line in my peripheral vision. So standing straight to each jump, when I point at it, I can sort of pick out that point and know where I at least need to point when I turn the corner to go straight to that jump. And then finally, I'll go back and walk the actual striding. So as anyone does when they're learning their courses, you know, five strides to the oxer and then left two strides and then three strides out, it's another jump. So of course, then I'll memorize and walk that course several times. So by the time, you know, this whole process is said and done, it's like a at least a two hour process, but it's a ton of memorizing. So by the time I actually go into the arena on my horse, I know where everything in that arena is, where the points are that I need to turn, how many strides. Mm -hmm. And then just to be safe, I also use a Bluetooth earpiece with my trainer. So if something does go wrong, they can tell me, you know, you took an extra stride here, you need to go to the right a little bit more. Or instead of four strides, you're going to add five strides now based on the track you're taking kind of Got thing. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So it's a very I, extensive process. Yeah. And obviously you are currently competing with able body riders. Are they, how does that work with the Bluetooth system and then with walking the course? I mean, are you able to like in the time allowed for, for a course walk? Like, is that enough time for you? Do you get to stay in there a little bit longer? How does that work for you? Right. So that is difficult. It depends on the show pretty much. You know, I'm fortunate that the, I live in Lexington, Kentucky. And so a lot of the Kentucky horse park shows and then up at uh, World Equestrian Center in Ohio, they usually will set the jumps the night before. So yeah. I'll be out there at night kind of walking. I don't have the course yet at that point, of course, but I'm at least able to go out there and walk and learn where all the jumps are. And then in the morning, once I have the course, I can do the walking aspect of it and the counting strides. Yeah. But there have been shows, you know, where there really isn't a whole lot of time to do that. And so that that does become difficult. So Sometimes, you know, I've started to learn that I need to pick and choose what shows I go to based sure. on how much time I have. Again, because, you know, I do walk the entire track I take as opposed to just going from one jump to the next and counting the strides. Right. So you definitely have to be more cognizant of the time you need and time management. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of, you know, the course, not the course designers, the uh, show managers have been incredibly helpful yeah. where they will actually, you know, take a picture of the course for you and put it on a large piece of paper and send it to you or have it for you to pick up so that you don't have to just go to the board where it's posted and not be able to see it. So, Got you know, it. people have been very helpful as far as that goes. 
Amazing. So when you are doing a course walk, once you have the course and you know the track, are you counting strides between every jump? Like once you go through a turn and once like any rollbacks, are you doing that entire track? Yes. Okay. Yes. So even, you know, coming out of a jump, if I'm going towards the rail kind of thing, I know that there's going to be five strides after the jump before Mm -hmm. I need to take a 45 degree turn to the right kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that is just so calculated. A lot of memorizing. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. So you were talking about your aide helping you go through the courses. Is yeah. that a different individual than your trainer or how, how does the team look like for you? <laughs> so unfortunately I'm working with a very limited budget. I'm able to ride through private gra- or private donations and grants. So my Amazing. aide is actually my boyfriend. Love. Um, Yes. Yes. And he is also my driver. I mean, he drives me everywhere. He is at the barn with me. He's helping with me with the horse on the ground. And so he has really learned what I need to be able to be successful and sort of the nuances of having a visual impairment. So he is actually my aide. I mean, he is spending just as much time doing this as I am. So he he's awesome. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You you could have just kept saying my aide, my driver. I'd be like, oh, you're so busy, right, right. but no, I love that. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Had he had any experience with horses or riding or anything in the past, or is this new to him? Well, so what's really interesting, I mean, his mom did do hunter jumpers growing up, but that was before he came along. So he didn't really have any exposure to it. But what's really cool about him, his name is Nick, is that he used to be a professional race car driver for Nissan. And so with that, when they're, you know, driving on the track, they take the racing line, which is essentially the same thing as the track that we take from one jump to the next. So it's all speed and time-based and everything in, in car racing. So he really understands that whole aspect of it, as well as trying to do, I mean, he's already done a sport at a professional level. So he really understands the time and the dedication that it takes, as well as the actual, you know, the tracks that we need to take going from jump to jump. So I'm, I'm again, I'm very fortunate for that. So cool. Okay, hold that thought because I wanted to talk to you about our sponsor today who has been a longtime partner over at My Equestrian Style for a few years now. They are one of my favorite equestrian lifestyle brands. But Tori Riding Apparel is designed for active, modern equestrians that are conscious of sport and style. And they do just that. They combine the cutest styles that are still super functional. One of my favorite items that they provide are the riding leggings, and they have this amazing side mesh pocket where you can be riding, and if you need to get to your phone, you can still utilize your phone's touchscreen through the mesh panel. It is so brilliant for our industry. I also love their knee patches and full seat because they're extremely durable for a riding legging, but you can still walk around and do errands or go to the gym in them and be perfectly fine and functional. If you want to learn more about Batori's products, they have a range of items. You can head over to their website at Batori.life. That's B-O-T-O-R-I dot life and take a look at all of their amazing products. Thank you so much, Batori. Let's get back to the episode. And you talked about your, your Bluetooth gear. What other gear do you have once you're in the show ring? Yeah. So pretty much, it's pretty much that Bluetooth earpiece and, you know, to prep for going into the show ring, there's obviously the warm up arena. And of course I have a trafficy spooky horse. Um, Oh my gosh. So what I will, yeah, yeah, it doesn't help. Um, So what I often do, depending on how busy the warm up arena is, is that I'll actually just have my trainer get on, warm up my horse. 
Um, just because there are so many external factors that I can't see, you know, when someone's coming at you or turns in front of you, whatever it might be. Yeah. So normally I just have my trainer warm up my horse and then I put on the Bluetooth earpiece and I go directly into the ring. But aside from that, my only other gear that I love are my magnetic stirrups. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm quite short, so I can't really wrap my legs around the horse. So those are key. Yeah, for sure. Have you you ridden in any airbag gear? I have not. And that is something that I would love to do. Um, Again, working on a very limited budget. It's not in my budget at this point, but I think they are fantastic. I'm surprised more people aren't using them yet. So I'm, I'm definitely a supporter of them. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy to see more and more kids out right. there using them and trainers. I know there's been new situations where some really top hunter jumper trainers are essentially forcing all of their clients to, to show in them. And I, I think it's right. a, you know, a really great little movement, but it took a, it took a minute for sure, but I'm happy yeah. to see yeah. more and more kids. My girl, my clients are in them too. And that's it's, awesome. It's just like, why not? Right. I mean, right. it's, such a, it can be such a dangerous, unpredictable sport. So, um, right. Yeah. I completely agree with that. So tell me a little bit about, because obviously it seems like you have a pretty good system and setup as far as, you know, how to be the most successful in the ring. Was there, I mean, there had to be quite a bit of a learning curve and some highs and lows along the way. Are, Are there any bumps in the road and high points that stick out to you? You know, I mean, there's definitely been a learning curve. Of course, there was no precedent for this. So there wasn't someone I could go to and say, hey, what worked for you? So I'm like sort of a a trailblazer, if you will. And what's, what's really cool, just as an aside, is trying to get my story out there more, the amount of people, both kids or adults themselves or parents of girls who are getting into the sport who have a big who then have reached out to me since I've started to get my story out there and I can do that for them and sort of show them those pathways, tell them tips and tricks that work so that their learning curve isn't as large as mine was. So that's been really cool. But, you know, some of the highs, I think one of the coolest things is, you know, because I don't look blind when people see me ride and then they find out after the fact. And my Mm -hmm. whole goal is to change the perception about what people with disabilities are capable of, in particular, visually impaired and blind people. Mm -hmm. And so for someone to see me ride, find out that I'm blind and it just switches their perception and and you can almost see, not that I could see them, but you can almost tell that they, they sort of have this, this switch in their, in their brain. And they'll come to me after the fact and they say, this is so cool that you're Mm -hmm. doing this. And so to be able to, again, to change the perceptions about what someone with disabilities is capable of has just been amazing because the applications that then that has for other people with disabilities is endless, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your horse, what you look for and what, what kind of makes this work between you guys as a team? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have a really cool horse. He actually is an an ex-Grand Prix horse. He's 17 now. And I bought him a year ago and, and I bought him when he was 16. So older. So that's the way I was actually able to afford him. But he is so cool because the one thing I need in a horse is that he will go over that jump no matter what. Yep. You know, I'm not always straight to my jumps. I don't always get the right distances because I can't see them. And so a horse that goes no matter what and corrects for that was my number one thing going into finding a horse. And he has so much heart. He does that. It's been a really interesting process with him because he does have, you know, from his past, he has some traumatic things that have happened to him. So he he doesn't trust a lot 
a lot of people, he is very spooky, he's trafficky. So those things were kind of things that we had to work through. But again, when he goes into that arena, it's like he is there for me, no mm-hmm. matter what. And what's really cool about him is, you know, I do this all by feel pretty much. And of course, the memorization of the strides. And so I can tell when he's locked onto that jump and when we're going and when we're taking off Mm -hmm. and that just that relationship with him. Of course, he doesn't know that I have a disability, but he does do that for me. And so that is really cool. I mean, every time I come out of the ring with him, it's like, I love this horse so much, you know, Um, and I think we all have that with our horses, but it's, it's definitely a very cool relationship. Totally. What, what height are you currently showing at? Yeah. So I am doing the meter 10. So it's the adult amateur division. Cool. Yeah. And of course, you know, for me, my goal is to do Grand Prix. I mean, I want to be the first blind person to compete at the Grand Prix level here in the U.S. So I'm not stopping here. (laughs) So cool. Oh, I love that. And uh, currently there isn't a pair show jumping situation in the United States. Is that, I know that that's something that you are having conversations with people about and trying to advocate for. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit about para-equestrian show jumping. The movement started over in Europe, so Great Britain is at the forefront of it, and there are several countries that recognize it now over in Europe, so they do have a para-show jumping league there. And what I'm trying to do is advocate for it to become an official discipline here in the U.S. as well as Canada, because once several countries you know, ratify it, then the FBI will take it on, and then that the ultimate goal is for it to become a Paralympic sport. So here in the U.S., I've been reaching out to the governing bodies for the past few years. And just earlier this year, actually, I finally was able to get the USCF and the USHA on a phone call. So I've been talking with both of them um, about pretty much the first step would be doing demonstration classes. So what that would entail is taking a group of para riders who jump and putting on a demonstration class at an able-bodied horse show just to prove to people that it's both safe for people with disabilities to jump and that we're also capable of it. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, once we gain some momentum, the hope is to actually have it recognized and put in the USCF rule book. So it's been a process, but it is, it is coming along and I have put together a list of riders and we have about 30 to 40 riders actually who have some sort of disability, physical disability, and who do either the hunters, the jumpers, or even eventing for some of them. So that's been a really cool uh, process. Amazing. What could someone listening interested in, you know, like learning more, or they know of someone, or they want to help out in some way, what are some things that people could be doing to help you out? Yeah. So reaching out to me, obviously, a lot of people have come to me since I'm sort of at the forefront of this movement. Obviously also reaching out to the USEF and the USAHA, telling them that you would love to see parachute jumping become a discipline, but definitely reach out to me. My contact information is on my website as well as my social media. Instagram's the main one. And we can talk about it and go from there. You know, we're always looking for more people to be part of the movement, whether it's riders, advocates, coaches, pretty much anyone. So yeah. Amazing. Well, Ren, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This was so interesting. And I think that so many people will love to hear more about this and and how they can be involved too, because it's an incredible thing you're doing, one, as an athlete yourself, but two, also kind of paying it forward, knowing that there are other people out there like you that are looking to do the same thing. So it's amazing what you're doing and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Bethany. I really appreciate that. 
All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.